Blog Talk Radio.
On the Road by Jack Kerouac, recorded by Sandra London, June 17th, 2015. Part 1. I first met Dean not long after my wife and I split up. I had just gotten over a serious illness that I won't bother to talk about, except that it had something to do with the miserably weary split up and my feelings that everything was dead. With the coming of Dean Moriarty began the part of my life you could call my life on the road. Before that, I'd often dreamed of going west to see the country, always vaguely planning and never taking off. Dean is the perfect guy for the road because he actually was born on the road when his parents were passing through Salt Lake City in 1926 and a jalopy on their way to Los Angeles. First reports of him came to me through Chad King, who'd shown me a few letters from him written in a New Mexico reform school. I was tremendously interested in the letters because they so naively and sweetly asked Chad to teach him all about Nietzsche and all the wonderful intellectual things that Chad knew. At one point, Carlo and I talked about the letters and wondered if we would ever meet the strange Dean Moriarty. This is all far back, when Dean was not the way he is today, when he was a young jail kid shrouded in mystery. The news came that Dean was out of reform school and was coming to New York for the first time. Also, there was talk that he had just married a girl called Mary Lou. One day, I was hanging around the campus and Chad and Tim Gray told me Dean was staying in a cold water pad in East Harlem, the Spanish Harlem. Dean had arrived the night before, the first time in New York, with this beautiful little sharp chick, Mary Lou. They got off the Greyhound bus at 50th Street and cut around the corner looking for a place to eat and went right in Hector's. And since then, Hector's cafeteria has always been a big symbol of New York for Dean. They spent money on beautiful, big glazed cakes and cream puffs. All this time, Dean was telling Mary Lou things like this. Now, darling, here we're in New York, and although I haven't quite told you everything that I was thinking about when we could cross Missouri, and especially at the point when we passed the Boonville Reformatory, which reminded me of my jail problem, it is absolutely necessary now to postpone all those leftover things concerning our personal love things and at once began thinking of specific work-life plans, and so on in the way that he had in those early days. I went to the cold water flat with the boys, and Dean came to the door in his shorts. Mary Lou was jumping off the couch. Dean had dispatched the occupant of the apartment to the kitchen, probably to make coffee, while he proceeded with his love problems. For him, for to him, sex was the one and only wholly and important thing in life, although he had to sweat and curse to make a living and so on. You saw that in the way he stood, bobbing his head, always looking down, nodding like a young boxer to instructions to make you think he was listening to every word, throwing in a thousand yeses and that's right. My first impression of Dean was of a young Gene Autry, trim, thin-hipped, blue-eyed, with a real Oklahoma accent, a sideburned hero of the snowy west. In fact, he'd just been working on a ranch, Ed Walls, in Colorado, before marrying Mary Lou and coming east. Mary Lou was a pretty blonde with immense ringlets of hair, like a sea of golden tresses. She sat there on the edge of the couch with her hands hanging in her, her lap and her smoky blue country eyes fixed in a wide stare because she was in an evil gray New York pad that she'd heard about back west and waiting like a long-bodied, emaciated, modigliani surrealist woman in a serious room. But outside of being a sweet little girl, she was awfully dumb and capable of doing horrible things. That night, we all drank beer and pulled wrists and talked till dawn. And in the morning, while we sat around dumbly smoking butts from ashtrays in the gray light of gloomy day, Dean got up nervously, paced around, thinking, and decided the thing to do was to have Mary Lou make breakfast and sweep the floor. In other words, we've got to get on the on the ball, darling, what I'm saying. Otherwise, it'll be fluctuating and lack true knowledge or crystallization of our plans. Then I went away. <clears throat> During the following week, he confided in Chad King that he absolutely had to learn how to write from him. 
Chad said I was a writer and he could come to me for advice. Meanwhile, Dean had gotten a job in a parking lot, had a fight with Mary Lou in their Hoboken apartment. God knows why they were there. And she was so mad and so down deep vindictive that she reported to the police some false trumped up hysterical crazy charge and Dean had to land from Hoboken. So he had no place to live. He came right out to Patterson, New Jersey, where I was living with my aunt. And one night while I was studying there, it was a knock on the door. And there was Dean bowing, shuffling obsequiously in the dark of the hall and saying, Hello, you remember me, Dean Moriarty? I've come to ask you to show me how to write. And where's Mary Lou, I asked. And Dean said she'd apparently hoard a few dollars together and gone back to Denver. The whore. So we went out to have a few beers because we couldn't talk like we wanted to talk in front of my aunt, who sat in the living room reading her paper. She took one look at Dean and decided that he was a madman. In the bar, I told Dean, Hell, man, I know very well you didn't come to me only to want to become a writer. And after all, what do I really know about it except you've got to stick to it with the energy of a Benny addict? And he said, yes, of course, I know exactly what you mean. And in fact, all those problems have occurred to me. But the thing that I want is a realization of those factors. That's one to depend on Schopenhauer's dichotomy for any inwardly realized and so on in that way. Things I understood not a bit, and he himself didn't. In those days, he really didn't know what he was talking about. That is to say, he was a young jail kid, all hung up on the wonderful possibilities of becoming a real intellectual, and liked to talk in the tone and using the words, but in a jumbled way that he had heard from real intellectuals. Although, mind you, he wasn't so naive as that in all other things. And it took him just a few months with Carlo Marx to become completely in there with all the terms and jargon. Nonetheless, we understood each other on other levels of madness. And I agreed that he could stay at my house till he found a job. And furthermore, we agreed to go out west some time. That was the winter of 1947. One night, when Dean ate supper at my house, he already had the parking lot job in New York. He leaned over my shoulders as I typed rapidly away and said, Come on, man. Those girls won't wait. Make it fast. I said, Hold on just a minute. I'll be right with you as soon as I finish this chapter. And it was one of the best chapters in the book. Then I dressed and off we flew to New York to meet some girls. As we rode in the bus, in this weird phosphorescent void of the Lincoln Tunnel, we leaned on each other with fingers waved and yelled and talked excitedly as I was beginning to get the bug, like Dean. He was simply a youth, tremendously excited with life, and though he was a con man, he was only conning because he wanted so much to live and to get involved with people who would otherwise pay no attention to him. He was conning me, and I knew it, for room and board, and how to write, etc. And he knew, I knew, this has been the basis of our relationship, but I didn't care about how we got along, or I didn't care, and we got along fine. No pestering, no catering. We tiptoed around each other like heartbreaking new friends. I began to learn from him as much as he probably learned from me. As far as my work was concerned, he said, Go ahead. Everything you do is great. He watched over my shoulder as I wrote stories, yelling, Yes, that's right. Wow. Man. And whew. And wiped his face with his handkerchief. Man, wow, there's so many things to do, so many things to write. How to even begin to get it all down? And without modified restraints and all hung up on, like, literary inhibitions and grammatical fears. <laughs> That's right, man, now you're talking. And a kind of holy lightning I saw flashing from his excitement and his visions, which he described so torrentially that people on buses looked around to see the overexcited night. In the West, he'd spent a third of his time in the pool hall a third in jail, and a third in the public library. They'd see him rushing eagerly down the winter streets, bareheaded, carrying books to the pool hall, or climbing trees to get into the attics of buddies where he spent days reading or hiding from the law. We went to New York. I forget what the situation was. Two colored girls. There were no girls there. They were supposed to meet him at a diner and didn't show up. We went to his parking lot where he had a few things to do change his clothes in the shack and back and spruce up a bit in front of a cracked mirror and so on. And then we took off. And that was the night Dean met Carlo Marx. A tremendous thing happened when Dean met Carlo Marx. 
Two keen minds that they are, they took to each other at the drop of a hat. Two piercing eyes glanced into two piercing eyes. The holy con man with the shiny mind and the sorrowful poetic con man with the dark mind that is Carlo Marx. From that moment on, I saw very little of Dean, and I was a little sorry, too. Their energies met head-on. I was a lout compared. I couldn't keep up with them. The whole mad swirl of everything that was to come began then. It would mix up all my friends and all I had left of my family and a big dust cloud over the American night. Carlo told him of old bully, Elmer Hassel, Jane, Lee in Texas growing weed, Hassel on Rikers Island, Jane wandering on Times Square in a Benzedrine hallucination with her baby girl in her arms and ending up in Bellevue, and Dean told Carlo of unknown people in the West like Tommy Shark, the club-footed pool hall rotation shark and card player and queer saint. He told him of Roy Johnson, Big Ed Dunkel, his boyhood buddies, his street buddies, his innumerable girls and sex parties and pornographic pictures, his heroes, heroines, adventures. They rushed down the street together, digging everything in the early way they had, which later became so much sadder, perceptive, and blank. But then they danced down the streets like dingledodies, and I shambled after, as I've been doing all my life after people who interest me. Because the only people for me are the mad ones. The ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, 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 like fabulous yellow Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars. And then in the middle, you see the blue center light pop, and everybody goes, aww. What if they call such young people in ghost Germany? Wanting dearly to learn how to write like Carlo, the first thing you know, Dean was attacking him with a great amorous soul such as only a con man can have. Now, Carlo, let me speak. Here's what I'm saying. I didn't see them for about two weeks, during which time they cemented their relationship to finished all-day, all-night talk proportions. And then came spring, the great time of traveling, and everybody in the scattered gang was getting ready to take one trip or another. I was busily at work on my novel, and when I came to the halfway mark after a trip down south with my aunt to visit my brother Rocco, I got ready to travel west for the very first time. Dean had already left. Carlo and I saw him off at 34th Street Greyhound Station. Upstairs, they had a place where you could make pictures for a quarter. Carlo took off his glasses and looked sinister. Dean made a profile shot and looked coyly around. I took a straight picture that made me look like a 30-year-old Italian who'd kill anybody who said anything against his mother. This picture, Carlo and Dean neatly cut down the middle with a razor and saved a half each in their wallets. Dean was wearing a real Western business suit for his big trip back to Denver. He'd finished his first fling in New York. I say fling, but he only worked like a dog in parking lots, the most fantastic parking lot attendant in the world. He came back a car 40 miles an hour into a tight squeeze and stop at the wall, jump out, race among fenders, leap into another car, circle at 50 miles an hour in a narrow space, back swiftly into a tight spot, hump, snap the car with the emergency so that you see it bounce as he flies out, then clear to the ticket shack, spring like a track star, hand a ticket, leap into a newly arrived car before the owner's half out, leap literally under him as he steps out, start the car with the door flapping, and roar off to the next available spot, arc, pop in, brake, out, run. Working like that without pause, eight hours a night, evening rush hours and after theater rush hours, in greasy wino pants with a frayed fur-lined jacket and beat shoes that flat. Now he'd bought a new suit to go back in. Blue with pencil stripes, vest and all, $11 on 3rd Avenue, with a watch and watch chain and a portable typewriter with which he was going to start writing in a Denver rooming house as soon as he got a job there. We had a farewell meal of Franks and Beans, and a 7th Avenue Rikers, and then Dean got on the bus that said Chicago and roared off into the night. There went our Wrangler. I promised myself to go the same way when spring really bloomed and opened up the land. And this was really the way that my whole road experience began, and the things that were to come are too fantastic not to tell. Yes, and it wasn't only because I was a writer and needed new experiences that I wanted to know Dean more. 
and because my life hanging around the campus had reached the completion of its cycle and was stultified, but because somehow, in spite of our difference in character, he reminded me of some long-lost brother. The sight of his suffering bony face with the long sideburns and his straining muscular sweating neck made me remember my boyhood and those dye dumps and swim holes and riversides of Peterson and the Passaic. His dirty work clothes clung to him so gracefully, as though he couldn't buy a better fit from a custom tailor, but only earn it from the natural tailor of natural joy, as Dean had, and his dresses. And in his excited way of speaking, I heard again the voices of old companions and brothers under the bridge, among the motorcycles, along the wash line neighborhood, and drowsy doorsteps of afternoon, where boys played guitar, guitars while their older brothers worked in the mills. All my other current friends were intellectuals. Chad, the Nietzschean anthropologist, Carlo Marx in his nutty, surrealist, low-voice, serious, staring talk, old Bull Lee in his critical, anti-everything drawl, or else they were slinking criminals like Elmer Hassel with that hit sneer, Jane Lee, the same sprawled on the oriental cover of her couch, sniffing at the New Yorker. But Dean's intelligence was every bit as formal and shining and complete without the tedious intellectualness. And his criminality was not something that sulked and sneered. It was a wild, yeah, saying overburst of American joy. It was western, the west wind, an ode from the plains, something new, long prophesied, long a-coming. He only stole cars for joy rides. Besides, all my New York friends were in the negative, nightmare position of putting down society and giving their tired bookish or political or psychoanalytical reasons but Dean just raced in society, eager for bread and love. He didn't care one way or the other. So long as I can get that little gal, that little something down there between her legs, boy, and so long as we can eat, son, you hear me? I'm hungry. I'm starving. Let's eat right now. And off we'd rush to eat. Or as, as said, sayeth Ecclesiastes, it is your portion under the sun. A western kinsman of the sun, Dean. Although my aunt warned me that he would get me in trouble, I could hear a new call and see a new horizon and believe it at my young age. And a little bit of trouble, or even Dean's eventual rejection of me as a buddy, putting me down, as he would later, on starving sidewalks and sick beds. What did it matter? I was a young writer, and I wanted to take off. Somewhere along the line, I knew there'd be girls, visions, everything. Somewhere along the line, the pearl would be handed to me.
money in my land of nothing, honey. When it ain't about the money and the weather's always sunny. Well, some are fighting it, I'm working hard, I'm uniting it. Bring your offering to the altar of enlightenment. Get you so excited, feel fire ignited. Can't help but be delighted, you officially invited. To the next level, step up, stand up. This about some other let go, show up. Time to show grace, show face, show face. Let it be known, right time, my place. Stars keep calling home in the deep space. I'm one of seven, so we keep up, keep pace. I have many names, so such a dream catcher. Demand and I claim, I'm always here, I'ma get ya. Worldwide, beat you now to your hometown. Wherever I be, well, you know it's going down. Actually met. Um, 
And we've known each other online off and off for how long now? I can't even speculate. Let's see. I've had my show, Play, Playtime with Sandra Radio, since 2012. I interviewed you not too long after that. Right, right. It's going to be hard to say when, so let's say at least five or six years. Wow, that's, that's, that's quite a while, five or six years. Uh, very quickly. Very quickly. A lot of things have happened. A lot of things have changed yes. as well. Um, uh, what, uh, I mean, some of the things that you've been involved with, with uh, uh, Sandra Radio, what was the name of your show again? Playtime with Sandra Radio. Playtime with Sandra, okay. Yeah. I said Playtime with Sandra Radio is basically my radio version of me. <laughs> <laughs> So you're all audio all the time right now. We're doing improv to test out. Uh, well, and an interview. Since we're not totally winging it um, to test out doing audio and visual. I've done one or two attempts early 2012, and ultimately just went with you know an audio only platform. This year, just sort of giving it a shot, see if I might want to do. More audio, video, and especially with interviews, like with people fabulous, like Sammy Yusuf, photographer extraordinaire. You know, it was a, it was a pleasure to, for you to, uh, for well, for you to. to uh, let me, let me, it was a pleasure for, to be able to find out that you wanted to interview me. That was kind of a, that took me like, well, why me? I I don't I don't have anything special. Um, but the, 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 well, the one thing that I learned from that, um, and it took you to, to kind of uh, bring that to me, is that everybody has a story. Right. And um, a number of other, um, say, hosts, uh, like, uh, that, that bring people's stories out to the public that would, would have never been shared with anybody else uh, is, and it's interesting, um, just to learn about somebody who just, what we think might be menial, mm -hmm. but after you learn about what they go through, it, it becomes more like, wow, there's so much that well, no, I don't think anyone's life is menial, that's probably why why I would choose someone like you, but I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> no, just because... Menial, like even if somebody has like a completely, they're born into the job, they're a sharecropper, a farmer, right. uh, whatever, that to be able to just persist every single day and get up and keep doing what they were made, quote unquote, to do, that takes the person, that takes their gumption, their effort, their spirit, and sometimes they're exactly where they want to be, right. and sometimes they're not, and sometimes you can see that in the person that you can see them going so much further. You can see it happening before it happens. Sometimes it may not, but you can see that potential. You can see that, you know, this person has more that they want to give to the world, and we can get to get like a snapshot at this point in time what they're doing and what they've been doing. And what ultimately happens could end up being something totally out of, out of blue left field. <laughs> I think, <laughs> what yeah, what I was saying is, is it's the perception I think a lot of people may have, uh, including myself, that when you look at somebody's job, that you would think it's, uh, you, you know, like for instance, uh, sometimes we would take things for granted um, uh, until we, say, lose our hearing, lose our eyesight, or, you know, it's like, okay. Some of the things that we have been doing on a regular basis can't do anymore. It's like, oh my God, it takes so much effort, mm -hmm. but you have to relearn everything. And, and yes. you mentioned agriculture. Right now we're in the middle of, uh, you know, uh, a lemon farm. And, and, I think uh, we're at a lemon farm. Yeah. It's uh, well, lemon avocados. And uh, I saw a bunny. He didn't see it straight away. I could well, see, see I that my, bunny. My, I need my glasses. <laughs> well, it wasn't, it wasn't a glass. It was an illusion because that bunny kind of blended. But it's very true. That bunny blended in like no tomorrow. The bunny knew what it was doing. <laughs> and um, I always spotted it because I saw it feed alive. If you know your eyes, you would just think it was part of the leaves behind right, the bunny. Right, right. Well, I it was part of the ground because the, the, the grayness, the ground and the, the bark that was on the ground, it was just like 
you know, like you said, a blended in. Smart bunny. Uh, yeah, I cute. But did you know that California, I believe, is either number one or two in lemon production in, in California? California is number one or two. I, can't, the whole I believe world it's number one. Or the US? No, the U.S. Oh, only in the U.S. Well, I don't know about the world. I mean, well, we what is the world? Okay, let's Google it. Okay, let's <laughs> but, but I'm saying is, is that a lot of people don't know that though. And the farmers that that. Um, have been doing this for a while that provide the lemons Somebody. that we all use. Somebody knows that. Yeah. Do they do limes too or just lemons? I believe just lemons. Buyers know that. For their beer and well, tequila. Well, okay. I mean, California Restaurant. gets lemons for all our tequila. Exactly. I mean, you, you need lemons for, well, you need limes. You, you know you, you need, need limes, it. But, you need limes, but. But we all need lemons for, for our fish. For tea. tea. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, cough drops. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. So anyway, yeah. Um, but we take that for granted, and a lot of people think, well, where are these uh, all these lemons are coming? And and nowadays, a lot of the agriculture that we're getting, especially when it's off season, we're getting it from Latin America, or we're getting from overseas somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, some of the things that we don't realize is that a lot of the things that we, uh, a lot of the agriculture comes from California, and we're losing that. A lot of people that have been said, like you said. Uh, they do one thing and one thing only throughout their life, and uh, um, the, the farmers that have been doing this for a long time, they've been in the family for a long time, mm-hmm. and I just, uh, you know, my my brain goes, well, what's happening with the U.S., with all the farmers out in the Midwest, out the back east, that have farms in their family for all this time, and all of a sudden, they're starting to lose it, you know? Uh, but in, in yet here in California, um, it's kind of the same thing because a lot of the land that right now is farmland. Arid, dry. Well, some of it is, some of it is. The, the interesting part is that the water, say we're in Ventura County, and uh, um, Ventura gets a lot of water from different sources, I believe, uh, and they have their own water source, actually, mm-hmm. uh, compared to, say, LA um, and some other, uh, other counties. Which is great. Um, so that's why they can have a number of farmlands around here and they flourish. Uh, just up in the mountains, you have tons of wineries, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me, did you see it? I put an ad, or not an ad, I sponsored, or not, I almost started here. I shared an ad for Napa Valley Murder Mystery Winery Tours. Oh. So you can. You know, on your way to the vineyards in Napa Valley, you can also have a, like a murder mystery, like a Excalibur type. That's fun. Well, you've got the Napa train now, have you ever? That's it? it? That's what they're doing. Oh, like, okay, so they're so kind of doing something there. Yeah, dinner show with it. That's awesome. Hold that thought for a second. Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure this is still running. And we're still good. Oh, it's still recording, yay. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, did you want to do your. Um, did you want to do your interview as well? Right now, or you want? How do you want to do this? Um. Uh, up to you. Yes, yeah, I can interview you starting in three, two. But wait a minute, for, for your audio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Madame Monsieur, it is Sunday, the thirty-first of March. In the year 2019, and you are now listening to, and possibly even watching at some point, Playtime with Sandra Radio. I'm your host, Sandra London of LivingGrinds.com, broadcasting for you live from the sunny beaches of darn near Central California, almost <laughs> in connection with Blog Talk Radio, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, Digital Podcast, and livinggrind.com, my official website. I'm here right now with Sammy Yusuf, and he has, uh, you know, entertained me with questions, and the like, and lemons, and bunnies. Bunnies, lemons, yeah. And so we're maybe going in first <laughs> for us, but not for you. <laughs> I'm going to begin my interview with Sammy Yusuf. I have interviewed Sammy at least twice. Um, in the past seven years that I've been doing radio, he was an excellent interviewee, and he is 
been able to go to a lot of high-profile events, um, get into those hard-to-access places where only the ultra-cool celebrities and protected people and la-la-la public figures can go. Who can go? Photographers. Why? Because people need to see it. They want that catalog of memories that they can actually see in person. So we have our professional observer here. So what is it like for you, professionally observing? I think that's a good question. Or put a good statement is, is observing. And, and that's what... Recording memories, recording um, what's happening at that point in time. And maybe not necessarily in audio or video, but capturing that just one moment when someone is talking to another person that, you know, they're engaging in, in a um, in a conversation. And, and, you know, you want to capture that sometimes. Sometimes it, that tells a story in itself. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about it. Um, most of my clients are my clients, and all the photos go to them. And so I, I don't necessarily share uh, my photographs with anybody else except for them, and they choose to decide what to share with the world. Do they make you sign disclosures at the lawsuit? I've never had I've never had anybody sign any uh, had given me asking me to sign disclosures with uh, some of the pro teams that I've uh, shot for. Um, you know, sports teams. Sports teams. Mm -hmm. um, and various sports teams in general. But but the thing is, is and that was a while back. But the thing is, it, it just it, part of it is trust. Mm -hmm. And I when you work, I think. Well, here's a couple of things. Um, with photographers, I think overall, sometimes there is a distrust as far as what they're going to use the uh, content for. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand that. Uh, and, and there is there's the I mean, if, with a when I work with a company, yeah, there are some uh, legal issues that we have to sit there and do a contract and sign. That's fine. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in a lot of cases, um, I've never really had to sign anything and I've never uh, broken that trust. It, it doesn't, because if I break that trust, my career goes out the door. You know, I can't do what unless, I do anymore. Unless you were a highly paid tabloid photographer or like some kind of... I've never, <laughs> I mean, I, I've been around celebrities where, where um, well, it, it's, no, it, okay, a couple of things. <laughs> <laughs> it can be boring. Depending on what you're talking about, when I engage uh, in conversation, it's whatever we're, you know, depending on what's happening with the event, or uh, if I work with a celebrity, then we're working uh, uh, with them. It's simple as that. You're working together, whether you get to know them or not. And, and, uh, and well, that's, the part, that's the part. It's like if you have no clue who they are, but you know they're, you know who they are, then you're only seeing them for that little moment of time. Maybe they're having a bad day, maybe they're not feeling good, right. and they're, they have all these demands. They just seem like so high priority. You're just like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to get to know who that person is. They don't really get to see what they're like maybe normally. Maybe they're always like kind of an asshole, or maybe they just had a really bad day that day I, kind of a thing. You just, you just go, I mean, a person like you're nobody in that thing. Like, what if there's somebody on reverse that you actually knew who they were? You really right. admired their career, you mm -hmm. liked them, and they had an exceptionally good day or exceptionally bad day while you were there. What happened? Would you take that pers like, personally answer? No, I don't take anything personally because I, I realize that uh, I'm there to do a job. I'm there to uh, help facilitate, uh, whether it's an event or promote a, uh, an event or marketing, branding, mm -hmm. uh, and I do all those things. So. Um, I don't make that assumption that that person's like that all the time. Whether anybody says so or not, or they're like that just when working. When they go home, that might be something different. When they're, you know, uh, if there's an old lady on the corner, why well, are they going to help them across? Are they going to help that old lady across the street? I, it, it doesn't really matter. Um, are you sure? I, I, what if you're? It's just the way there has I. There to be I something in your head ever, like some moment or you just, you just had a higher expectation for the person and well, then they just totally shattered it and they were like mean if to they you did for no reason like okay, well, if they did something morally wrong in front of me then depending on the rapport I have with them it, I would say something or not it just it, depends is it morally is it morally wrong for them to be mean to you if they don't know you 
Well, with seven, okay, let me put it, okay, okay. Here, here's, here's a, yes. here's a, uh, <laughs> how do I answer that question? Um, here's an example. I was mm -hmm. uh, uh, doing a monologue for uh, a, uh, um, You're acting? Well, I, was, I, was, I had been acting a while, a long time ago. It was college, you know, everybody does the acting thing. Um, I mean, I've been doing some, uh, every film that I've been in lately, uh, uh, I've been killed. I've been killed. So it, you know. How many films have you been in? Like, have I? I've not seen. You've never seen any of them. No, they're they're. You've never told me about any of them. Hello. They're they're independent films, and uh, you know, a friend w um, is a. <laughs> That's terrible. The first, oh. film, the first film I, I was in, the director basically calls me and says, "All right, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take this. You're going to do this. You're going to do this, and then you're going to die." Like, okay, great. That's my first. It was the first thing that we did in that film, in that movie. And the first thing what was that was it a musical? <laughs> it's an independent film. <laughs> it could still be a musical. Um, and then the second one, I think I got shot. The third one, I got hit. And I got shot in the head. And the what? fourth one, I was a western. Uh, actually, the western was pretty good. I thought I was gonna live. In fact, he, he had me living. And all of a sudden, he's like, "Well, let's take one more take. This time, you're gonna fall over and die." I'm like, "I can't get a break." <laughs> you can't. Um, well, and, and well, what? Okay. So I've done the, I've done the weird, posters. It's going to be a, a weird question. Which ethnicity were you playing when you were shot? Well, what? what <laughs> when you were shot. Well, you died. it's just me, whoever the character was. What was the one, one character. Okay, the, fir the first one was a junkie. It was and a, you were shot? Well, no, 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 no. I wasn't shot. It was a, oh, hold on. Sorry. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. The first scene that I ever did was, he said, okay, take this bag. It was a bag of flour. And you know that cinnamon test that everybody was doing at the time? No, I do not. They took a spoonful of cinnamon, tried to eat Who it. Who did that? I don't know. Idiots. Um, so he gives me this bag of flour. Like and the said, bird hey, box take, people, this, huh? <laughs> take this bag of flour, put it overhead, and uh, pretend like you, it's, a, it's a new drug and you really can't get enough of it, and then you die. Okay. He said, you're going to choke, you're going to gag, you're going to whatever. Um, we did a whole bunch of scenes of that, because he wanted from different angles, different shots. Sure. And he said, well, can you make it look, look real enough? And, and I'm like, what do you mean real enough? I am really gagging. Because really, you take that, pow you know, that powder, basically dry powder, and you're stuffing it in your mouth. All of a sudden, you're gagging for real. You're you're gasping for air. They give you airbag air, <laughs> or whatever it is, airbag chemicals. <laughs> they want an authentic <laughs> emotion. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Well, are we still going? Yeah, we're still going. I, I'm always afraid that this thing is going to. Well, I I don't assume that's going to happen. Yeah. Um. Anyways, so, did that mess up your eyes? Did that affect your hearing? That did not affect my hearing. Okay, good. It, it did not, well, maybe it did affect my eyes a little bit, uh, but definitely affected my breathing. Uh, that was first. Your breathing is an important thing. Usually. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I've been doing a lot of posters for these films. That's how I uh, started working uh, with the, it, it, the uh, production company is called Wild Dog Productions, and they have a Facebook page. I they're, I mean, the the director Michael Pernelli, um, uh and uh, uh, the cohorts that he's with, and uh, um, I'm trying to think here for a second. Let me take a breath. Um, breath. Yeah. It's like I've got this mind block all of a sudden on the production company. The production company is Wild Dog Productions. Production. I remember. <laughs> and the director is Michael Frivinelli. And uh, uh, the, one of the producers, or Frivinelli? one of the main producers, Frivinelli. It's always hard for me to pronounce his name. An Italian Now that's better, baby. Why don't we sing a song to help pass the time? Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Merrily, 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 life is 
down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Santa's pole and the ever-incorrigible unicorn. I've lived nearly 52 weeks so far this whole year, packed my travel bags with freedom and feathers, but no fear. Fed some goats, kissed a kitty, ran with puppies far and near. Oh, Santa, dear Santa, where the fuck are my reindeer? I want half, but I'll settle for a third. Santa's unicorn. <laughs> 